contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Before we get to our special guest, Mike McCann, talking about the end of Deflategate, the O'Bannon case denied by the Supreme Court, and Maria Sharapova's suspension reduced. Let's talk about Casper for a minute. The mattress industry is forced paying notoriously high markups. Casper's revolutionizing it. It cuts the cost of dealing with resellers, showrooms, pass that savings on to the consumer. Mattresses can often cost over $1,500 and more, but Casper, $500 for a twin size, $750 for a fold, $950 for a king. It's completely risk-free, free delivery and returns. Casper is obsessively engineered at a shockingly low price. It has springy latex, supportive memory foams, creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink, just the right bounce. In fact, Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Try it for 100 nights, risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Free shipping and returns to U.S. and Canada, and it's made in America. Now, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash brandt, all caps, my name, B-R-A-N-D-T. Use brandt, all caps, B-R-A-N-D-T. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the business of sports, kind of a law of sports version with a friend and colleague. Mike McCann is joining me. Mike, like myself, is a law professor at New Hampshire School of Law. I'm at Villanova. And now, Adam, like myself, does a lot of media on all these issues that pop up from time to time. And more often than not, what's going on in sports law is kind of de rigueur for what's going on in sports. So I'm really happy to have Mike with me. Welcome, Mike. Well, Andrew, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation today and and talking about a number of issues that I think are, are of interest to listeners. Yeah, Mike, and I, and I think I, I thought of you first when I saw that on Sunday night, sort of after the games ended, right before the week begins, the NFLPA, the National Football League Players Association, which had been representing Tom Brady throughout this two-year saga against the NFL and what's been known as Deflategate and known very well by you teaching a class with that name, uh, they gave up the fight. They, they raised the white flag and they announced they will not, will not be pursuing an appeal to the United States Supreme Court, which for all intents and purposes has ended uh, the Deflategate as we know it through chapters of litigation and negotiation and frustration for many viewers. But it's over. And I I thought of you the perfect person. And I'm going to start this, Mike, by just sort of giving you an open canvas to say you look back on this 627 days, I believe. uh, And what is your first thought? What is your first reaction to what happened that dominated this landscape for almost two years? Well, Andrew, I'll say at the end, uh, the decision not to continue the appeal, I, I think all of us would say was expected. Right. The odds of the Supreme Court taking this case, particularly after Brady already served the suspension, were profoundly low. If they were already low to begin with, they were probably nearly zero by by that point in time. And I'm sure that the Players Association didn't want to petition the Supreme Court to only quickly get denied, which would sort of cut against their argument. And I think it would be interpreted by some as somehow another loss for Brady, which is not what they would want. So 
right. understandable, yeah, understandable decision not by the by the player association not to continue it. But I think the the larger picture of it is that this was a story that science told us one thing and the law told us another. And by that, I mean, we know that there are a number of scientists who have raised serious questions about the NFL's accusations against the Patriots, specifically accusations about how the footballs were tested, the circumstances in which they were tested, how long were they inside during halftime. These are aspects that have a tremendous impact on how the footballs would measure because of ideal gas law, a basic rule of science that indicates how air pressure is measured under a certain set of circumstances. And John Leonard, an MIT scientist, has said that the, the football is measured as science would predict, which would suggest that tampering didn't occur, or if it did, it had no impact. So you know, there's that part of the story, which I think is very important because it has led to a great deal of frustration that neutral scientists are saying nothing happened. And yet the other side of the story is the law story, which I think doesn't necessarily match up well with the science part of the story, because right. as we know, right, Roger Goodell has virtually unlimited authority under Article 46 of the Collective Bargaining Agreement, and it was an authority that he invoked, and, and not enough federal judges were willing to read into the CBA rights that weren't clearly stated. So uh, you know, this is a story where where science and law I don't think match up particularly well, and it's led to a lot of frustration, particularly among people in New England, but I think across the country. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the ideal gas law and the sort of... Um the sort of insufficient evidence, I'll leave it at that, with all the gauges and everything that went on. Because, and I only say that because when I think of Deflategate, I'm way past deflated footballs. And maybe that's because not being as invested as a New England fan, I have just seen this all along as a sports law case, commissioner power, the extent of it, the breadth of it, going to district court, and then ultimately to the appeals court and declining to go to the Supreme Court. Whereas you said, uh, Commissioner Power was affirmed and maybe even buttressed by what happened here, that he did not overstep his bounds, according to the Second Circuit, and we're left with that. And sort of, I see we're left with where we started six years ago with the CBA negotiations not changing the power of the commissioner, and we're sort of where we are after millions of dollars of legal fees by the union to change that. Um I guess what I'm saying is, as someone that sort of has been invested on the New England side of it, you obviously see it as more than, well, they tried to say that Commissioner Power was abused here and they lost, and so Commissioner Power is stronger than ever. You really see this as an abuse of power in some ways, do you not? Well, I mean, I think not necessarily and i say that because i think the players association didn't negotiate the kind of pro- protections that brady needed right. that this was in part a failure of a cba which is as much if not more the fault of the labor side negotiating it than the management so uh, i i don't know if it's an abuse of power i, I understand that uh, obviously, Judge Berman thought that it was an abuse of power in the sense that Brady didn't receive adequate notice or didn't 
have access to the investigative notes and didn't have a chance to interview Jeff Pash. But, you know, from my vantage point, and I look at this neutrally, I mean, I do live in New England, right. but I'm not, you know, a fan of any team. I'm not rooting for anyone. I, you know, because you know, Andrew, when you're in this industry, you can't, you can't root for anyone. You have to really just uh, try to be fair and, and, and as neutral as one can be. But, but I am in New England and my students are, almost entirely Patriots fans. So I certainly hear that side, that, that perspective, but I don't, you know, I mean, it, you probably have thoughts on this. Is it really, whose fault is it if there isn't a certain protection that Brady needed to be adequately protected in the scenario? Is it the fault of the union that, that didn't obtain it? Or should Goodell have acted more reasonably in the sense that, he was implicated in this controversy, and yet he still served as the arbitrator. He had a right to, but maybe a different commissioner wouldn't have served as the arbitrator. Maybe a different commissioner would have stepped down, just like Goodell did with Ray Rice, where he had right. a former judge step in to, hear, to do the hearing. And I, and I think, honestly, the NFL would have been better served in terms of the, how the public has reacted to the story if Goodell hadn't been so intertwined in the decision-making process. And I understand he had a right to, no one one can question that he had a right, but but sometimes having a right and using it and the appropriateness of using it are two different things. And, and I think a commissioner like Adam Silver, if he were in this position would have acted differently. Um, So I I think that there's a bit of a, a struggle between the fact that Goodell had all this unlimited power, but I think that there's a real question about whether he used it in in a reasonable and appropriate way uh, the court, of course, is going to. The courts have said, at least two of the four judges that looked at it, two of them said Judge Chin and Judge Parker. You know, it's not our decision whether he used it reasonably. He had a right to use it, and he used it. So, uh, I, I think it depends on how you look at it. And, and it's interesting because the four federal judges that have reviewed it, two of them sided one way, and two of them sided the other. Yeah, you mentioned that it's, it was a year ago that Brady was looking invincible, playing out the season. 2015, no suspension. Judge Berman was a hero <laughs> to New England fans, right. and and a household name for standing up to the NFL. And you know, we both analyzed that opinion up and down, where it was a clear chastisement of Goodell and and yeah, abuse of power. So it changed, and it changed. I think sitting in that courtroom in March in New York in the first two minutes, when Jeff Kessler couldn't get through first line without being called by the, the judges who even said, you know, Brady, couldn't have Brady have been disciplined just for destroying the phone, forget everything else. When you have that line of questioning, you kind of knew where that was going. I guess, I guess to, to comment on the power issue, here's my thought. I get it. You know, I covered that negotiation. I've been in multiple negotiations, multi-issue negotiations myself. I get that the PA gave up on that issue and went for other issues. Maybe that issue affects 10, 15 players a year. But to now say they didn't really think that Goodell would be this controlling, this dominating in it, or unfair, I do take issue with that because before 2011, and you can comment on this, it just seemed like there's no surprise here. This is not a new Goodell. Uh, Ben Roethlisberger, six games, suspension for something that happened with a woman in a bathroom, that was not determined to be criminal. 
uh, or did not draw charges. Adam Jones suspended for nothing, no arrests. Uh, Tank Johnson not arrested. So I, I, again, I understand giving it up in a multi-issue negotiation, but to now say, well, we didn't think Goodell would be this this uh, arbitrary. I think that's disingenuous. Yeah, and, and I think that that's a fair critique of uh, what the Players Association position is. And the Players Association might have also felt emboldened by some recent wins against Goodell, mm-hmm. which I mean, effective wins, right? Jonathan Vilma, Ray Rice, for a long time until recently, Adrian Peterson, even Greg Hardy, his punishment was reduced from, what, 10 games to four games. That was something of a win for the Players Association. I think that the Players Association might have thought even if we didn't do a great job negotiating this policy in the CBA, our lawyers are really good in Jeffrey Kessler and David Greenspan, and they keep winning. And I think that that, that was correct until certainly Tom Brady and, and then later on Adrian Peterson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, as you mentioned, Andrew, that there's a fair question as to whether this topic warrants much attention at the bargaining table. You said it affects, what, 10 to 15 players a year or something like that? Not a lot. Right. So is it is it a good use of time? Is it a good use of bargaining power to fight over a policy that affects one or two percent of players when there are so many other policies, particularly related to health, that are affecting all or most players? So, you know, it's fair to criticize the Players Association, but at the same time, I, I think the choice of not trying to change this policy or not spending a lot of energy doing so, it's not totally unreasonable. Right. And where do you, you know, in terms of winners and losers, which sort of putting a scorecard, which may not be the fairest thing to do about this 600-day process, obviously the winner is, is the CBA power for the commissioner. The One of the winners is um, the NFL for this power. Maybe a loser is... Tom Brady, obviously, a loser might be the PA. You know, where do you put kind of the the product, the, the NFL? I mean, I guess what I'm leading to is they certainly won in the court of law. Uh, did they lose something in the court of public opinion over this this going against the league's most popular player in the way they did, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, you're right. They won in the court of law, but but to me, it was something of a hollow victory right. in the sense that not many people are celebrating the victory. There's a lot of doubts about the underlying accusations, like we talked about earlier, that even people that don't like Tom Brady or that don't like the Patriots, I think, have questions about what took place and that the league would fight over this to the extent it did. And I, I don't think, I mean, Goodell wins in a sense that the powers of the commissioner are upheld. It's not enlarged to some extent, but certainly hasn't made Goodell more popular. And I don't know if he's a winner. I don't think he, I don't think his reputation was enhanced by this case. I think that it in fact was damaged by, mm-hmm. by Deflategate that, that this is, a, this is, this is a fundamentally minor equipment issue that morphed into this massive controversy. And we know that in other leagues, those things tend not to happen, that it seems, it seems unnecessary that this became such a huge deal. So I, I, I don't think the league, I don't think that Goodell is a winner. I don't think he's obviously not a loser because they did win, but 
I think he's in the sort of purgatory place where he's neither a winner or loser. Uh, Brady lost. Uh, Players Association lost. I think Paul Clement, the attorney that we both saw in New York argue in the appellate hearing, huge winner. He did a great job. He was a, whatever the NFL paid him to argue before the second circuit, uh, he earned every penny of it. Right. But in terms of the, the, the league product, you know, I, I, mean, I, I don't think it, it has much effect. I, I don't think the league is losing fans over Deflategate. I don't think it gained any fans. I think it's sort of a blip in the league's history that won't have a dramatic impact on the league's popularity. Now, I think it's fair to ask, is the league better off, really better off with Tom Brady, one of the most marketable players, not playing for four games? That seems hard to believe, right? It's, I don't think the games are the games are worse without Tom Brady. But the the actual impact of that for 32 teams is probably pretty minor in terms of overall ratings, although it is interesting that ratings, from what I've seen, are down thus far this season, but I, I don't think it has to do with the play game. And I, I don't know why if that's the case, ratings are down, but to me it doesn't, I don't think there's much of a linkage to the play game. Yeah, I have a theory that I've talked about over the over the year about this sort of, I guess my point is nothing happens in a vacuum, timing is everything. Just the Ray Rice 2014, the league called on the carpet by Judge Jones, by the public, by the general media about lax investigation, lax punishment, under punishment. And then, of course, Tom Brady happens. And look what we have. We have over-investigation. We have over-analysis. And most would say over-punishment. So I, I think there's there's sort of this cycle that the NFL goes through. And um, Brady maybe was on the wrong end of it. And I think the last thing, and I want your comment on this, is I do. I'm not standing up for the NFL here. I do think, though, that somehow people think Roger Goodell and his counsel kind of sat around the NFL offices and say, "Let's get Kraft and, and Brady." This came from Robert. I'm sorry, Jim Irsay, uh, and complaining about soft footballs. So somehow we we sometimes ascribe this sort of anti-patriots to the league where, in fact, it comes from other teams. Yeah, right. And we know that owners have complained that I think that there's plenty of, of teams that are suspicious of the Patriots. And there was a really a couple good articles, both on ESPN and SI.com last year mm -hmm. about that and kind of the paranoia in the heads of other teams that play the Patriots that it sort of has led into deep suspicions, um, even though most of those fears are, have not been borne out with any facts. But you know, obviously we saw Spygate as the, the narrative that's, that it's a makeup call for Spygate. I guess the, the one aspect of that that I'm not sure is correct is that Spygate, the Patriots were punished pretty severely. They lost a first-round pick. Right. They, right, Belichick got a $500,000 fine. It wasn't like... You know, they got a slap on the wrist. This wasn't, they lost a fifth round pick. They were punished pretty significantly. So it's it's hard to know that, hard to think that the Flakegate seven years later was this moment where Roger Goodell would say, okay, I'm going to make up Spygate. I, I think he punished the Patriots pretty significantly in Spygate. So you're right, things don't happen in a vacuum. And it could be that Brady was on the wrong side of the pendulum 
and, and maybe that is the explanation. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think the, the league is the league itself is conspiring against the Patriots, and that just doesn't seem likely. But it could be, like you mentioned, several owners that could be complaining regularly, and that can affect how Goodell perceives things. Indeed, I'm talking with Mike McCann. Sports Illustrated legal writer, also a professor at New Hampshire School of Law. Be back to Mike in a second to talk about some other legal sports law issues in the news. But first, a quick word from Elite Team. Football fans, you can now wrap yourself in your favorite NFL team. EliteTeam.com has beautiful, luxurious NFL and college sports blankets. Perfect for your man cave, Ray made right here in the USA. NFL and college blankets from this Northwest company, 44% bigger than average blankets. They're actually two blankets sewn together with technology that will keep you comfortable any temperature. Machine washable, softer with each watch, 100% made in the USA. You've never felt a blanket like this. Shop EliteTeam.com, save 10% with promo code TUCKER, all caps, T-U-C-K-E-R. Get wrapped up. Enter, enter promo code TUCKER to save 10% at EliteTeam. Dot com, the official blanket of pure fandomonium. Back with Mike McCann, and this week, some news in intercollegiate athletics, where the Ed O'Bannon case was going to the United States Supreme Court, or petitioned to be, and they denied it. Mike, I'll let you talk about the issue with O'Bannon and college athletes, and, and the idea of payment for college athletes as we get to the next case in line. But first with O'Bannon. What were they appealing? Which side looks good coming out of the Supreme Court not taking the case, which, as we talked about with Brady, was kind of expected? That's right, Andrew, was expected. I know some people thought that this might be the case where the Supreme Court says, let's let's decide amateurism in the United States. But this wasn't really the best case for that point, because this case really was a more limited issue. And the limited issue was whether or not college athletes specifically men's basketball and football players ought to be paid or have the capacity to bargain over the commercial use of their names, images, and likenesses. And that issue is interesting, and it's one in which O'Bannon technically won on appeal. He won both at the district court level and then at the Ninth Circuit in a decision that I think has led to fairly modest changes, and specifically the cost of attendance of attending college, which is something that academic scholarships can account for, but something that historically the NCAA hadn't allowed until recently, the Ninth Circuit held that in order to compensate for name, image, and likenesses, likeness, uh, use, of, uh, excuse me, use of name, images, and likenesses, that students should be able to get the uh, full cost of attendance that's now allowed. So that was the big change from O'Bannon, but the NCAA was already going to do that. So not entirely clear how significant the O'Bannon case ultimately is. It doesn't have the sort of sweeping impact that I think was expected when the case was brought back in 2009. But ultimately, it's a case where the NCAA, some of the NCAA's amateurism rules were deemed unlawful under antitrust law, and that's a decision that other cases can use, including a case called Jenkins versus NCAA, where there's an antitrust argument over capping athletic scholarships. So I think O'Bannon's significant in part because he won. The NCAA's amateurism rules were deemed unlawful, but the remedy in this case is just not that significant. 
Yeah, it almost seems like in a win for both sides, it's kind of a tie, kind of a kissing your sister result where, as you said, and for precedent purposes, yes, the rules of the NCA were determined violative of antitrust law, which is a big deal. But yep. in terms of remedy, as you said, the earlier decision of this up to $5,000 fund for each player for NIL, name, image, likeness, was ruled uh, against in the latest decision, where it's just cost of attendance, which, as you referenced, the Power Five conferences basically do that now already. Uh, so it really was not getting much out of it. So I guess the question is, where are we left with O'Bannon? Before we get to the the next case we refer to as the Jeffrey Kessler case, sort of where is this postscript on O'Bannon now, just as the Flategate ends, so does this seven-year O'Bannon run, and what are we left with here? Well, I think what we're left with is some disappointment by those who believe the NCAA is unfair. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that the $5,000 trust fund vehicle that would, would have been used to pay players up to 5000 per year while they're accounting for the time they're spending in school paid after they leave school. The, the problem with that number was that it was never clear why it was 5000 or why there's any number. And, and the appellate court held that it seemed as if it was a number that kind of was created out of thin air. It was a number that a witness had testified to during the O'Bannon trial back in 2014, but it wasn't some empirically proven correct number. And and had that existed, had that $5,000 remained in place, I think it would be significant because it would be seen as paying players. But, but as you mentioned, that's off the table. Right. So what we're left with is a decision that doesn't, that doesn't change the lives of athletes across the country, but it could lead to players in other jurisdictions bringing O'Bannon-like cases, and perhaps they'll get more favorable decisions. Perhaps the remedies, you know, a player that in New York or or in Illinois or in Texas, at different federal circuits, bring a case and the outcome could be more substantial. And then maybe at that point, the Supreme Court would then take it because there would be a, a circuit split. But you know, the aftermath, the, the, the more limited aftermath is business goes on. That's right. been going on for a long time. Well, and it goes on, as I mentioned, the power conferences are doing what, what was prescribed as allowable cost of attendance. But I guess the real upset apple cart scenario would be if teams are forced to compete for top players or top players coming into college, top players while they're at college, which would be to remove all restrictions on recruiting and paying these athletes, which is how I referenced this Jeffrey Kessler case. Talk a little bit about that. It's I talked to Jeff recently. He said it's looking at, you know, early 2017, starting the, uh, the in-court process. Yeah, to me, Andrew, that's the real potential game changer of a case where should players, high school seniors that are top recruits, should they be able to negotiate the value of their athletic scholarship? Why is it capped at tuition, room, board, books, et cetera, that a student who's in college for some academic or other purpose uh, is getting a full ride for? I mean, why, why, why should Jameis Winston, a player of that caliber, when he when he's a high school senior who has every major college program beating down his door, why can't he negotiate a a scholarship 
if we want to still call it a scholarship, that reflects the value that he's bringing to his school. Uh, we know that that value exists. We know that coaches are, are paid millions of dollars, some of them in college, and big stadiums and new training facilities. And you know, Kessler's argument has been it's clear money is being made. Now, we know almost every school claims to lose money on sports, but right. maybe that's true, but it's just just the impression of it is that if that's true, why are coaching salaries going up and up and up? Um, so the argument is that schools shouldn't be able to have a rule that they've conspired, if you will, to create this rule that athletic scholarships are capped, that that in and of itself is anti-competitive. So in a world that Kessler deems would be correct, schools wouldn't have to pay more than that, but they can't agree with other schools not to. So maybe the University of Alabama decides we'll pay $500,000 right. for the next great you know, quarterback or running back. That would be a very different world from what we have. And that would be much more along the lines of a professional league. Right. Uh, right. I mean, that, that would be a game changer. Yeah. And again, I want to stress we're a long way from that, a long way from that case even starting up. But you mentioned sort of the coaches. I did ask Jeff on this podcast actually about well, what about the argument that money will be diverted for these players and taken away from non-revenue sports, women's sports, lesser sports? Will it lead to the the diminution of college athletics except for one sport or two sports? And his answer revolved around the coaching salaries that we still tend to have women's sports with $6 million coaches' salaries in football. Uh, we have D3 sports. Uh, so... Again, he's got the answers for that, but it is a realistic question. There there have to be some limits on spending. If you're spending half a million dollars for the next Jameis Winston, where is it coming out of? That's right. And I think it's reason I think there's reason to think that certainly other male sports that are not revenue generators, which are already vulnerable, would become more vulnerable in this world. Uh, Title IX would protect women's sports to some extent uh, in this world. Um, and, and maybe Kessler was right that the money's there. It's just yeah. to be reallocated away from coaches and away from multiple assistant coaches and dozens of training staff, et cetera, and, and would be reallocated towards the labor. He could be right. And, and you know, I, he could also argue this wouldn't be popular, but he could say that isn't his concern, that his concern is whether there's an antitrust harm Mm-hmm. And that it's up to schools to figure out how to be lawful. That it's not his duty to figure out a world that is fair in a moral sense or in a policy sense, but it's it's a world where the system complies with antitrust law, even if we worry about the consequences of that. So, and now that's not what he said to you, but he could say that in court. He could say it's really not his concern. Right. Yeah, lots, lot to happen, and we'll be talking about it as we go forward on the NCA issue. Final minute while I have you, Mike. The, today, as we record this on Tuesday, uh, October 4th, a decision involving one of the two or three most famous women's tennis players alive, that would be Maria Sharapova, whose two-year ban for the use of a banned substance was reduced by the Court of Arbitration for Sport today to 15 months. Uh, I think she can return now in April 2017. Have you had a chance to look at the opinion and the reasoning 
and your reaction to it? Yeah, I just glanced at it uh, a short while ago, so I'm not as familiar with it um, at this moment as I am some of the other stories. But certainly, it's something of a win for her. Right. Although it's a it's a fairly modest reduction, it's not doesn't vacate the suspension. It also doesn't clear her of wrongful conduct, but it does indicate that the suspension was perhaps excessive uh, given her degree of fault, and that while she bears some fault. An appropriate sanction is one that's lesser than what she was originally assigned. And we've seen other athletes achieve that kind of result. Alex Rodriguez's suspension was reduced. It was still very long, but Mm -hmm. he at least had it reduced. Uh, Latrell Sprewell's suspension was reduced. Uh, Again, you know, it's still, it's a victory in a, in a fairly limited way, but I think it's good that there, that this is what arbitration should do. It should review the not only whether somebody did something wrong, but what is the appropriate sanction? And if the sanction is excessive, uh, then it ought to be reduced. Yeah, and in that, you know, I did, I glanced as well, and I it did, did not present WADA and the ITF International Tele- Tennis Federation in the best light. That, as you said, certainly some of it was her fault, but the guidelines, the procedures, the restrictions were not as clear cut as they should have been, and. Sort of that leads me, I guess, a final question looking back now over the whole Russian doping scandal that infiltrated the Olympics this summer. I've had David Epstein, uh, formerly of Sports Illustrated, that's covered this issue greatly on the podcast. And this whole idea of a state-sponsored doping system just continues to astound me. Um, And more often than that, sort of a, a, a person involved with the IOC, I forget his name, and... WADA uh, serving in both functions. So I guess I'm, I'm sort of, I'll, I'll close the podcast, Michael. You're sort of thinking about doping in general as, as a legal issue as we go forward. It just seems like uh, the entire Russian team from a visceral perspective should have obviously been banned, but uh, more than half were allowed in. It, it just, where are we now? in this trying to catch the cheaters when we know they're ahead of the testers? Well, I think you nailed it, Andrew. Yeah. The cheaters are ahead of the testers. The, the market is there to be ahead, right? That the regulators are always going to be a step behind because those with financial wherewithal have the will and the capacity to be ahead of, ahead of the testers. And I don't think that dynamic's going to change. And I think it could be improved, but part of the issue, as you mentioned, is that there are so many different entities that have a stake in the regulation of doping that you wonder if there's some muddling effect because of that, that it's not clear who has ultimate authority or who regulates the other in terms of what's an appropriate way of testing. And I think, you know, obviously I'm speculating, but I think that that's part of the problem is that this isn't a more confined situation where we can say, well, it's the NFL, the NFL has the right to collective bargaining. It's, it's this international uh, dynamic that I think is hard to regulate. It's hard also to investigate. And how do you investigate a country if they're doping? And what, what access do you have to their facilities? Is it, what, what conditions exist for confirming that a country is in compliance with international regulation. I mean, this is true not only in sports, it's true in uh, matters of, of military matters and uh, you know, all sorts of topics that 
energy matters that I think get to this issue of how do you verify compliance, and it's not something that I don't think there's been as much success in as there needs to be. Yeah, I mean, you bring up the resources. I was covering this in class about the Alex Rodriguez and biogenesis the other day, and it's just amazing to students and maybe to listeners that someone like an Alex Rodriguez, Ryan Braun, all the people involved with that biogenesis were going to a, a strip mall in Miami right. <laughs> from a non-doctor just handing these things out. And I and they're astounded. And I say, well, wait a minute. Now, you understand they're not handing these things out at the Mayo Clinic. You know, you're not right. giving out these anabolics at the Cleveland Clinic here. So where do you think they're going to get it? But the, the, the lengths that top athletes or any athletes at that level would go to, uh, to gain an edge. It's just amazing. Yeah, it truly is. And I don't think that's going to change. You said a strip mall in Miami, uh, if they, if that can be the key to some players gaining a huge advantage, then it's re- there's reason to think that that dynamic is being played out elsewhere because it's very hard to monitor. Yeah. Michael, this has been great. I'll talk about Deflategate, O'Bannon, the Jenkins case, Maria Sharapova, doping. Really appreciated this uh, this great discussion, and uh, we obviously think alike on a lot of things. Hopefully, made for good good podcasts. I really appreciate it, Michael. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, Andrew, and thanks to your listeners as well. You got it. That was Mike McCann for the Business of Sports podcast. You've seen her fly, now watch her move to a brand new network. The CW has a new hero when Supergirl lands October 10th. It's the season two premiere of the show critics call Pure Blissful Fun. This season, the Man of Steel loss will be revealed. Supergirl's Melissa Benoist teams up with Tyler Hoechlin, who's the newest Superman in the DC Universe. This superhuman family reunion has these Kryptonian cousins joining forces in the fight for justice. And if you're wondering if the next president will be a woman, we have your answer. Linda Carter, the original Wonder Woman, guest stars as Supergirl's commander-in-chief. An evil corporate empire will rise that bears the name of an age-old nemesis, Luther. Supergirl and Superman come face-to-face with Lex Luthor's next of kin, Lillian and Lena. And as you might expect, the Luther family shares a passion for power that can only be satisfied by a different kind of green, kryptonite. Supergirl, all new episodes starting Monday, October 10th, now only on The CW. Thanks for listening to The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.